question. Have you ever rushed to defend yourself or to defend somebody close to you? Did you take action before thinking it all the way through? Were there consequences for acting on your impulse? Whether it's road rage or whether somebody getting shot at a little league football game, that we have to create some pauses in the culture. And that's not an easy task to do. That's not an easy, simple answer to that, to that situation, but it's worth a shot. It's worth us exploring how can we implement something into our culture that makes people pause and think about their actions before they respond to the stimuli. Now, what if those actions involved more than just saying something hurtful or damaging property? And if you grew up around it, how do you avoid slipping into a cycle that's tripped up generations who came before you? You have to have people who are willing to be mentors to these kids, to be role models to these kids. They're growing up in a landmine, you know, and anywhere they can step, they can blow up. They can step right here, you can blow up. And so they need trained individuals who can help them navigate through the landmine that's called life, that's called a neighborhood, that's called survival. I'm Bailey Friday, and North Texas wants to know why and how has society become increasingly violent and short-tempered? It led me to stand in front of a judge who then told me that I was a menace to society and sent me to prison. That's Anton Lucky. He's the president of Urban Specialists. If you haven't heard of them, they are actually a nonprofit working to eliminate violence in urban environments. My neighborhood, the environment that I grew up in at that particular time, growing up in the late 80s or early 90s, was so violent. And the, the name of it was survival. The name of the game was survival, being tough, being mean, et cetera, et cetera. And so for me as a kid who was who wanted to be that student that brought the teacher to Apple, that student that 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 excelled in school, it wasn't a match. That drive wasn't a match for the community in which I found myself in, uh, a community that dictated that I had to be a certain way. Lucky actually grew up in Dallas's Mill City neighborhood, just east of Fair Park. Ultimately, because every neighborhood that was surrounded my neighborhood that I grew up in, they had already identified with the Crips. They were already Crips as long as I can remember. My neighborhood didn't have no identity. We wasn't gangbangers or gang members or affiliated for that matter. But every time we would go to school or leave out our neighborhood, we would have to fight these other kids who did identify with gangs. In 1997, when he was just 20 years old, Lucky was convicted of possession with intent to distribute. In that moment, I became very self-introspective because that's when I realized and I thought to myself and life slowed down for me just enough for me to say to myself, how did I go from being this good kid, being an A on a roll and a talented and gifted student to being called or labeled a menace to society and being sent to prison. He ended up serving three years at the George Beto unit in Anderson County before being released in April 2000. And during his final months in prison, he found someone to aspire to. I was looking at the news and I see 
this guy in my neighborhood talking about gang intervention and stopping gangs. And that's what I was talking about in prison. And he just happened to be with two of my cousins. And I remember saying to myself, if they are with him, if he could get them to be on, on the news with him and what he's saying is so right for the moment, I, I, I wanted to meet him. And that was Bishop Omar Jawar. Jawar founded Urban Specialists. And this is pretty amazing. When Lucky was released, he and Jawar brokered a peace treaty between the Bloods and the Crips in Dallas just four months later. And so for the last 22 years, I've dedicated my life, I cut my teeth on finding strategies to stop violence in urban communities. Last March, Jawar died of complications from COVID-19. I'm not minimizing that violence didn't take place when I was growing up, but it wasn't as rampant as it is now. It, it, you can film a violent act and at a press of a button, millions of people can see it. That's different. So think about that. Think about how, you know, the copycat stuff that's happening now with young people and, and this need and this drive for attention, you know, this, this need and the drive for fame. You know, what we started to see right at the beginning of the pandemic with the, the initial lockdowns and then as we went into the summer with the social unrest that emerged from the protests that happened as a response to the George Floyd killing was we saw nationwide, and every city was part and parcel of this, including Dallas at the, at the outset of the pandemic, we saw a nationwide spike in community gun violence. And it was in every big city, it was in every part of the country, and it was in small cities as well. That's Alex Picaro. Now at the University of Miami, he is a criminologist who was appointed to task forces by both Dallas Mayor Eric Johnson and Dallas County District Attorney John Cruzo during his time at the University of Texas at Dallas. Earlier this month, President Joe Biden named Picaro Director of the Bureau of Justice Statistics. Picaro spoke to KRLD's Austin York. But what we did see during the pandemic and maybe a few years prior to that was we saw this uptick in the use of guns in shootings and in killings among young people. So people under 18, you know, homicide typically has been a slightly older person's crime, you know, in the 20s or so. But now it's starting to shift a little bit back. It's concerning because it's, it's not just, you know, something that happened for a year, which would a lot of Researchers call it a, a blip or something like that, but it's been a sustained trend. Former Dallas ISD Police Chief Craig Miller agreed that things have been different since the start of the pandemic. I really believe in, the, in this, what I'll call the post-pandemic era, that as students return to schools, uh, we've, we've seen an increase in, in violence at the schools. We've seen an increase in guns brought to schools. We've certainly seen an increase in fighting. We've seen an increase in acting out. A lot of these are mental health issues, which will always play a role in this. It's always really hard to pinpoint the one thing. There never is a, a one thing, but there's a constellation of things that have all been converging at the same time. So let's take the pandemic, for example. Kids were out of school. They weren't able to see counselors. They weren't able to see their friends. They didn't have a routine. They lost that social and educational experience of school. We also noticed that there was an uptick in the increase of gun sales as well as gun theft. We saw an increase in the use of alcohol as well as opioids because we can measure both of those by alcohol receipts as well as visits to the ER for hospitalizations and overdoses. All of those things were converging. A great deal of them are coming from single-parent homes. 
where um, the home life is in turmoil, where his mother trying to raise a child, father is either in prison or the relationship is strained. And so by mother having to work long hours, she don't have the necessary time to nurture this relationship. And so, and then because of the rift between mother and father, in most cases, you have these young people who are growing up without that emotional and healthy support and love. You know, no one, you know, you got a kid that's a byproduct of a divorce or a byproduct of a estranged relationship who are not being nurtured, who don't have a role model or someone positive to start pouring in or implementing to this kid. And so what ends up happening is you have kids who, who grow up non-empathetic because they hadn't been loved. They hadn't been, they hadn't been nurtured. They hadn't had no role model. I think that we see kids are having more access to these guns and, and whether or not it's those ghost guns that, that don't have serial numbers that, that these kids put together themselves, or as suggested by recent ATF data, it's guns that are stolen in, in home burglaries or robberies of stores. They have more access to weapons today, it, it appears, and, and it seems like obviously they're using more of these. And, you know, around the country, where we're, whether it's a mall shooting or an Airbnb shooting or shooting at a club, uh, many times the, the, the victims are juveniles and the suspects are juveniles. And, and that's something that's going on across America, whether it's the access to the weapon, just remember that they're a reflection of what they see in their community and what they see at home. This might surprise you, or, you know, maybe not. A factor everyone we talked to cited on the topic of gun violence skewing younger is likely in your hand right now. What we see different now than when you and I were kids and we didn't have a cell phone is that a lot of these fights start out online. They start out on Internet sites, some that you and I can see, and some that are on the dark web, and they transmit into the real world. And instead of kids solving their problems with fists, they're solving them with guns. And guns are much more lethal. There's a lot of them in circulation. And kids aren't thinking about the future. They live in instantaneous real time where the phone is the real world to them, right? So someone blasts them on Twitter or TikTok. They think the whole world sees that. And to them, that world is what matters. We have to get them to realize that, look, you know, these arguments are not consequential for your life. What's consequential is picking up a gun and destroying not only your life, but the life, more importantly, of the person you took or hurt. we got to get these kids to start thinking about being 25, being 35, and having a life and a job and a career and a family and a spouse if they want it. we got to get them to think about not the next five minutes of their life, but the next 50 years of their life. Miller said social media can also create real-life environments that have the potential to turn violent fast because of the sheer number of people who quickly are able to find out about an event. When you have larger crowds and you bring in younger people with older people and they merge and you incorporate alcohol and or drugs into those, then you've got a recipe for something really bad to happen. I think that people are so on edge, right? There's no pause. It's nothing to make people say, let me pause for a second. There's no messages that's reinforcing a pause, you know, because, you know, social media is one minute you're grieving, one minute you're happy, one minute you're sad, next day you rollerblade. You know, it just it happens just like that, you know, because we are moving so fast, people are not allotted or thinking about a pause. So everybody's moving, everybody's moving. And so when you see these shootings where somebody, they tempers flare up, boom, boom, and somebody's shot, 
without even thinking about it. And then and, and, and that's what we're seeing because we, there's no impulse control. There's nothing that's putting the pause in the culture to make people think before they, they react. Okay, so if shootings among teens are one point of concern, another is the violence that seems to result from heated, but otherwise innocuous disagreements. For example, earlier this month, youth football coach Mike Hickman was fatally shot after a game in Lancaster during an argument. According to Dallas police, there was a, quote, disagreement among the coaching staff and the officiating crew. Looking at this shooting at a youth football game in Lancaster last weekend, and just the surge in road rage shootings over the past few years, what's going on here? What do you think is causing the rise in these types of incidents that seem so spontaneous? Well, I think fear is what's going on. And I think that we're all, we've got this basic uncertainty. I mean, what we went through with the pandemic, you know, we, we've tried to shove that aside. Oh, it's over. I'm done with it. That's Lee Richardson. She's the founder of the Brain Performance Center in Dallas. But the fact of that is that has touched us all and left us in a very different position. There's paranoia. I mean, can you think back a couple years ago when people were fighting? over toilet paper? That's about as basic as it gets. The shooting happened in front of some of the children who played in the game. Hickman himself was a former running back at the University of North Texas and was married with two kids. That's emotional trauma. And that even, when you see that happen, that emotional trauma stays with you. It lives in your subconscious. You, you know, we say, oh, just don't think about it, but you can't let it go. And that emotional trauma impacts how that child's brain develops and how that child's brain functions all through life. Through the end of July, the rate of violent crimes, we're talking assault, kidnapping, and sex offenses, in the city of Dallas were down. All of them down compared to last year. The exception? Homicides. They were up 13%. That's according to a Dallas police report released to the city council. It tells us that we're more reactive and we're more impulsive. And that goes back to that fear that, you know, that fight, flight, or freeze mode that we all get in. But when our autonomic nervous system gets all out of whack and our brain can't tell our body what to do, we get there and we're just, we don't know what to do. We don't know whether to fight or flight or freeze. And when we get in that fight mode, that's exactly what happens. Every town for gun safety found that Texas tied for second with the highest rate of people shot in road rage incidents in 2021. Nationally, the rates were also higher across the board. My team has been trying to figure out how do we create a pause between stimuli and response. We definitely need a pause. But I, and I, sometimes I think it's, it's, it's the constant reminder, it's the con interjection of certain thoughts that make people think, you know, that, that, that you don't see. You know, social media is not about the pause. It's about, you know, everything else. There's always been guns in Texas. So is it just all this political unrest, pandemic? Is that why we've seen such a huge increase in shootings over the past couple of years? Well, there, there have always been guns in Texas. But in 2020, Texas was one of the four states that had an estimated over a million guns sold. In 2020, the gun sales went up something like 52% from 2019. 2021 was a little bit better. They came down a little bit, but still 
those are the top two years for gun sales in the past two decades. So I think that that has that has something to do with it, that the more guns that are available, the more that you see them. What's interesting about this is it, this is not a thing in like Canada or like England. And, I, and I'm not making this like some liberal Republican thing. But the community gun violence thing that we're, we've seen in the, in, since the pandemic and the younger kids who are shooting, not just necessarily killing, but shooting, it's a U.S. phenomenon. So that's the question that's got me thinking, you know, I know we got a big homicide problem here, and I know we got a lot of guns in the United States, but it's got to be more than that. And so something is different about what we're doing in the U.S. with kids or, or how kids are adapting to the world here, because we're not seeing the proliferation of guns and gun violence in other countries around the world the way that we're seeing it here. All right, I'm going to roll off some statistics here for you. Analysis by the Small Arms Survey, that's a Swiss-based gun research group, shows that the United States has 120 civilian firearms per 100 residents. That's more than double the second country on the list, Yemen, and nearly four times as many as Canada. According to the BBC, 79% of homicides in the U.S. were a result of gun violence, compared to 37% in Canada, 13% in Australia, and just 4% in the U.K. Is anything about this shocking to you? Has anything shocked you, or is it kind of predictable? What are you thinking? Well, it does shock me. It shocks me that somebody shows up with a gun at a peewee football game. That is shocking to me. And... It's, I've seen the anxiety. Before the pandemic, one out of four Americans suffered from either a mental health issue or a substance abuse issue. I cannot wait to see what that number will be after the pandemic. Because if you look at addiction, suicide, all of these factors that are the result of mental health problems, they've all gone up dramatically. And I think that we need to realize and this shocks me. People still don't realize that mental health is just as important as brain health. If you had a heart problem, Bailey, what would you do? I'd go to the heart doctor. Yes, you would. But if you wake up and you don't feel good and you feel like, oh man, I just don't know if I can do it. You start this nasty little conversation with yourself. Suck it up, buttercup. Come on, come on. You have to do it. Mm -hmm. And we need to change that conversation. You wake up and you feel like you can't do it. You need to go to a brain doctor. You need to get some help. And when I say brain doctor, that can be a counselor, a, a lot of different ways. A lot of different ways. But Lucky says whatever the solutions are, they will take time. Ain't nothing happened in three months. When, when it took 30 years to get in this position. So we have to have a sustained effort of putting in resources, of understanding from a brain perspective, of nonprofits, of law enforcement, of credible messages, all working to ultimately bend this curve, you know? And so I've been a big advocate of these kind of collaborations where we, and realistic expectation in terms of the vibe. I think oftentimes the media report this stuff and has this microwave type of solution. You know, I want it to happen overnight, and it, it just don't happen like that. You definitely have to have a true and authentic, transparent relationship with law enforcement. You've got to have that as it relates to this. And that sounds good on the surface, but it has to be a real relationship where you bring in 
those individuals, those community leaders, those credible messengers, and you have to bring them in proximity and in, in, in spaces with law enforcement because it's a, it's a big gap right there. You know, it's a gap that we try to fix. And so you got you got to build you got to build those relationships. Those relationships are very important that we build. You know, and and it has to be honest honest relationship because there are people in communities who are law-abiding citizens who want safe communities. They want the presence of uh, law enforcement. They, they want that. You know, we did, I think it was 2,000 surveys in four neighborhoods and 93% of those respondents said that they want the presence of police in their community to feel safe. But they also said they didn't want to be harassed and profiled. So that's the balance right there. We got to figure out how do we have more presence without being profiled, right? And the only way we only way we get out that space is that we have to begin to have real conversations, up close conversations with law enforcement about how we address our community. And it has to be a, a transparent space and it has to be it has to be a real space. It can't be platitudes. It definitely can't be platitudes. Uh, it has to be a real space. We all have the power of observation. And we need to use that. If you see something, you hear something, say something. Don't just think, oh, well, that's not my problem. Because unfortunately, it is becoming everybody's problem. You know, I used to say that the shooting did have a lot to do with mental health. Now, I say all these active shooters, this is a public health problem. It can affect us all. If you or someone you know is struggling, resources are available. The state has resources online through the Texas Education Agency and the Texas Department of State Health Services. The number for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 988. I'm Bailey Friday at News Radio 1080 KRLD in Dallas, Fort Worth. Thank you for joining me on our new podcast, North Texas Wants to Know. Before you go, please give us a rating and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you liked this episode, share it with your friends. This episode was produced by Chris Blake and Savannah Jones. KRLD's Austin York contributed interviews with Craig Miller and Alex Picaro. Original music by Michael Eisenstein. Editorial support from Cooper Mall. Odyssey's managing producer for national news podcasts is Myron Kaplan.